Thank you so much. It's like you're looking through a telescope. You see where you go. Our radio show, Butterfly Evolution. We are very excited about tonight. Yes, and tonight's topic. I am your host for this evening, Rodney Jordan, school teacher, Anastas, Virginia. I'm also the author of Proud of Being Black, uh, which was written to offer a fresh perspective on the negative stereotypes and struggles of the black race. I'm so excited about tonight's show. We're actually going to be discussing one of the chapters from my book, and we have on the phone with us uh, tonight Professor uh, Dr. Jay Smith out of the University. Are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead and and tell us uh, a little bit about yourself before we dive into this uh, very popular topic tonight. Yeah. Well, uh, I am a professor of European history. I teach at UNC Chapel Hill. I've been there since 1990, so I'm quite the old timer now. Um, I got my, uh, my my BA and MA at Northern Illinois University in the middle 1980s, and I got my PhD at the University of Michigan in 1990, and then came directly to Chapel Hill from there. So um, my whole career has been at UNC Chapel Hill. It's been a, a wonderful experience in all sorts of ways. But um, in 2010, 2011, I, uh, like a lot of people, I guess, I, I got sucked into the vortex when the, the news of the various sorts of um, problems uh, in the athletic department and um, uh, an academic department that, that uh, had seemed to be uh, serving the needs of athletes and other students uh, began to seep out. And, and so I started paying attention to the, uh, the details of that scandal, um, became something of a local expert on that, and I, I've just been engaged in all of those issues for the past several years. It's, in a way, I've, I've had to put on hiatus all of my actual scholarly work as a European historian. I'm focused on the scandal now. And how was how has that been for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it, it's been an exhilarating ride. I, I'll say that um, it, it's it's been difficult in in some ways at some moments, but um, you know I I've entered a world that I I had never known before about 2011. I've met so many wonderful new people, new colleagues I, I didn't know before 2011. And I've, I've learned a lot of things about how universities work, how athletic departments work, how, how athletes live their lives. Um, and it's changed the way I, I look at my, at my job and my duties as an educator. So I have no regrets, uh, but it has been a bumpy ride from time to time. I will admit that. What are what are some of the issues that have come about uh, because of the scandal? And we're going to uh, uh, get more light on what one of your um, friends found, or one of your colleagues found. But what are some th- some of the things that have come about because of this uh, cheating scandal down at the University of North Carolina? Yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't actually quite make out the question. But what, what were some of the issues that what are some of the things that have uh, 
come about because of the the scandal um, at the University of North Carolina with the with the athletes and academics. What are some of the things that that have uh, transpired ever since uh, right. Mary Willick and went public uh, with this information? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I mean, the essence of the story at UNC, at least as I as I see it, as I look at it, um, the essence of the story is that the nature of the educations provided to our scholarship athletes has been revealed really for the first time. And, and, and what, what that education represents should trouble all of us because uh, it seems quite clear to anyone who looks at the, the whole picture objectively that many revenue sport athletes uh, especially the highly recruited ones, I would say. Many of them are funneled through a particular kind of curricular experience that necessarily impoverishes their university educations. They they are they're put in in the uh, in the into the hands of officials who necessarily think first about eligibility concerns keeping the players on the field and on the court in order to perform with their athletic gifts so that we can rack up more wins and more championships. That, that is the priority for them. And necessarily, therefore, their, their educations, their intellectual development, uh, the cultivation of their futures goes by the wayside. And you know, this, this has become uh, starkly evident at UNC because of this very particular two decades long eligibility system that had been in place through the through the kind of conniving backdoor conniving of a variety of individuals um, in one particular department, especially involving the chairman and uh, academic counselors in the athletic department, or at least who reported to the athletic department. Um, you know, because of the careful planning of these people and the turning of, of, of blind eyes all around campus, uh, athletes were, were shepherded through this kind of bogus curriculum in which they had to do little or no work. And, of course, we all know what that means about the educations that they received. They were impoverished ed- educations. Um, there, I mean, there's just no way around that. And so, you know, that to me is, is the essence of the UNC story. And... Everybody who worked at UNC, everybody who's a sports fan around the country, everyone who cares about athletes or who, who purports to care about athletes ought to be outraged by this and ought to be moved to, to change the system. It's just unacceptable. Now, I'm, I'm sure that there are a lot of people who agree with you, but there um, have been a lot of people um, who have been against um, your colleague going uh, public with this information, what do you say to, to those people? Why do you think that some people are actually outraged and uh, sort of created a hostile environment for her? Yeah. Well, let's face it. These, these, are, these are difficult issues to talk about. It's, it's much easier. It has been much easier for decades for all of us to look the other way and to refuse to, to address the issues openly to refuse to talk honestly about them. That's the easy thing to do. 
and um, so many people are are attached to this enormous entertainment entertainment enterprise that uh, it, it, you know it's hard for them to imagine changing changing that enterprise in a way that would deny them their entertainment. So, uh, you know, in my opinion, I mean, I, I, Mary Willingham's uh, data, of course, has been hotly disputed. Um, people, officials at the university have, have uh, contested the validity of the statistics and so on. But in my opinion, the, the data, the, the Willingham data has been used to distract attention from her experiences from, in my opinion, the much more important experiences that she has relayed through the many stories she's told to, to journalists, to colleagues, to officials at the university. They prefer that people do not listen to those stories, and so they attack the data as a way to discredit her in, in her entirety. So um, I, I see it as, as at least in, 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 on the part of some people, as a very cynical maneuver to focus on the data, which which they believe is uh, is incorrect, as a way of brushing Willingham's experiences aside. The fact of the matter is that Mary Willingham and legions of people around this campus, and I've, I've talked to teaching assistants, I've talked to faculty, I've talked to retired faculty, I've talked to people who work in learning disability services, uh, and I've had I've got my own experiences as well, and. There is a mountain of anecdotal evidence that tells us that there are at least a significant number of revenue sport athletes who've come to UNC classrooms unprepared to do the work they're asked to do. And they've been put in impossible situations. They're being exploited for their, their, their physical talents. And they're not being properly served educationally. We can talk, we, we can argue all day long about exactly what figure that is. Is it 10%? Is it 5? Is it 20? I don't know. It's a significant number, and we should all be concerned about it. And if it's above 0%, it's an issue. Exactly. Because, right. Because, you know, taking away anyone's right to an education uh, is against the law. Because we all have the right to learn, and, and and we all have that we all have that freedom, and so I think what what she was trying to do is not only point out an issue at the University of North Carolina, but at other colleges and universities across the nation. And of course, when when I read when I read things like you know there was a student who came in who could not read multisyllabic words, I mean, that's an elementary school uh, <laughs> objective. And then, uh, you know, one player came in and said, you know, and asked her if she could teach him to read well enough so that he could read about himself in the news. I mean, that's, that's pretty bad and speaks volumes to uh, the problem that these athletes have with reading, um, writing, uh, doing math, and, and, and everything else when, there are articles about you in the newspaper, yet you cannot read them. You can't comprehend yeah. them. And I think that what right. she was trying to do was, was shed light on the bigger picture. Yep, exactly, exactly. Yeah, this is not a 
a UNC specific problem, not 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 uh, by any means. It's a, it's a national problem, and it's it's both a K through 12 and university problem. And you know we've got to rouse ourselves to meet the challenge here, and uh, you know stop and stop um, countenancing continuing injustice because that's what we're doing by by looking the other way by failing to confront the issue head on we're just you know we're perpetuating social injustice and we should all be bothered by that what do you think about athletes who either go straight from um it's not allowed anymore because the rules have changed but who Mm -hmm. go straight from high school to the pros or who may spend a year um, before uh, leaving for basketball, after basketball, after a year of basketball, college basketball, you're allowed to Mm -hmm. leave um, into the draft, the NBA draft. And after three years of uh, college football, you're allowed to enter the NFL draft. What do you think about – what do you think about those those rules? Should players be required to graduate? Should they at least uh, have some sort of basic skills? What are your thoughts on players being allowed to leave early for the for the professional league? Well, uh, you know my my thought on this is that athletes should have the same rights that every other person has, and. You know, if my if my 18 year old is graduating from um, high school next month, decides he wants to enter the workforce and bypass, bypass college or defer college um, or, or you know wait until he's older, he has the right to do that. And it seems to me that any football player or basketball player ought to have the very same right. Uh, I, I've I've never quite understood the logic of restricting their access to the employment market that way. I've never understood how the NBA, the NFL, and, and the colleges who are complicit with them can justify that. So in my opinion, okay. they ought to have the, right, the same rights everybody has. Obviously, as an educator, uh, I value education, and I, I, would, I would want every 18-year-old to come to the university for four years, of course, but um, they should have the right to, to make up their own minds about it and, and to earn a living. If they've got the skills to earn themselves lots of money at the age of 18 or 19, why shouldn't they be able to do it? Okay. I think I, I think that's a valid point, and I think a lot of people um, would agree with you. And just because um, athletes do decide to leave for the, for the professional league, um, it does not mean that they cannot go back and, and get their degree. I think Shaquille O'Neal is, is, is someone who has done that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he left. He, he left LSU and and went to uh, the Orlando Magic. Um, but as you know, has spent his rookie season returned to school um, and furthered his uh, education. And so, right. Um, I mean, I agree with you. I, I would like to see um, even if players do leave for, you know, the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball, NHL, whatever the case may be, I personally would like to see them at least have basic skills in reading, you know, be able to read, be able to write, 
um, be able to function mm-hmm. um, after their careers are over because, you know, let's face it, no one is going to play right. football until they're 60. Right. You know, yeah. yeah. Right. They're still going to have lives to make for themselves after their playing careers are over. And so, yeah, I, I agree entirely that they need, they're going to need their educations. Um, when they acquire them, I guess that's the big question. Should you know, should they be forced to do it on the on the front end or permitted to do it after? But absolutely, they're going to need their educations. I agree entirely. Okay. I mean, is that, um, is that, that even good? That that even goes for the big superstar players. I mean, if if you're retiring at 36, you're still going to want to have something to do with your life. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> so having an educa- having an education is going to be important for you in planning the rest of your life. So I, yeah, I've always I mean, that, rejected that. Is that. True. I think I've always I, I rejected think a that. Lot of... I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I've just always rejected that argument that um, you know some of these guys are going to be making millions, therefore they don't need educations. I reject that entirely. It's okay. just uh, you know. Wealthy people want to be educated too. Why? Why shouldn't they? <laughs> I think that's how the rich stay rich. They 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 get an education <laughs> along with it. Exactly. Yep. Um, I think that um, I think that um, also um, the universities are not only responsible. I think uh, the players themselves are responsible. But I want to ask you. Why are why do you think parents um, aren't doing more to protect their children? Um, why aren't the students themselves, uh, you know, standing up for themselves or trying to protect themselves? Um, you know, what about the government or the NCAA? Um, you know, why do for, uh, professors, high school coaches, and you know, high school teachers go along with these? With these issues, you know, uh, with, with with passing athletes along or, or, or giving them breaks or, you know, not holding them to the same standards as as other students. Why do you think that is so? I know yeah. there was a lot of questions mm-hmm. all in one, but but why do you think that is so? Yeah, well, that 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 is a um, a complicated question. We have a, we have quite a while, so take your time. Go ahead. <laughs> There are probably lots of answers to that one. Um, there are many, many, many structural, you know, factors that that help to perpetuate this crazy system we've got. Um, you know, but maybe maybe the first one is that uh, at least the students themselves they, they love the games and they they grow up playing those games. They they have praise and attention lavished on them when they do well at those games. Um, they're made to, to, to think in, in, in subtle and not-so-subtle ways that that's, that's how they ought to be focusing their energies and, and that they might even have a chance to, to make the big time. I, I mean, it's just, um, you know, our, our culture so glorifies athletics and, and entertainment and celebrity that it's, I think it's easy to understand why, why the kids themselves would get seduced by it all. And heck, even their, even their parents and, and their mentors and coaches and, and, and others who know them, uh, if they have any talent at it, you, you can understand why there would be this inclination to, 
to channel their energies toward athletics and and to, to come to regard um, academic exploits as almost a nuisance or a hindrance. I think you can understand that. Um, to me, as someone who works at the university, it's a little harder for me to understand how university educators and administrators can look themselves in the mirror and, and, and accept the way that we at the university system continue to exploit these guys. Um, it seems to me we ought to know better. And we, we ought to be doing, doing the moral thing, doing the correct thing, uh, living out our obligations as educators and, and seeing to it that um, the inequities built into the system, which, which do go deep and go you know, all the way back to when these guys were in fifth grade probably, the inequities run deep. But we at the university level ought to take it as our duty, it seems to me, to do whatever is needed to, to correct those inequities, to, 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 to make whatever fixes are necessary. Um, whether that means, for example, um, you know, in some cases, implementing remedial programs that will bring everybody up to speed before, before they enter the regular university curriculum, or whether it means partnering with K-12 systems, their respective states, so that you know, everybody understands what the standards need to be and, and uh, what the performance benchmarks need to be before everyone makes it to the age of 18. I don't know exactly what all the solutions should be, but universities ought to be working at them. And it bothers me that they aren't. Uh, I, I, I can agree with that. And, and um, just being, um, you know, a, uh, a teacher myself, um, it's very difficult um, and it's heartbreaking to, to, to get students who, you know, maybe um, in the fifth grade or the or the seventh grade or the tenth grade who are two and three grade levels behind. Um, right. Because it makes you wonder um, who dropped the ball, uh, why was the ball dropped in the first place, and, you know, mm -hmm. why is it okay to continuously fail students? Uh, we have a question um, out of a out of the chat room, um, and again, uh, we keep uh, everything anonymous here. Uh, a butterfly evolution. Uh, if you would like for me to to, to read your, your name or to say your name on on the air, uh, please let let me know. But we do keep everything and everyone anonymous. Uh, but the question uh, it it says: Before a player can get to a university, they must graduate from a K-12 institution. Why are these student athletes, and that is in quotation marks, in a position to get into UNC or any school? And this comes from someone, um, it also says, I work in higher education as well, and I see more, uh, more than athletes, uh, more people, than, more students than just athletes with developmental issues that are accepted with the same issues as as athletes, why is it a tragedy for athletes and a reason for development um, for every other mm -hmm. student? Um, yeah. <laughs> fair, fair, fair question. 
fair question. I, I, um, it is true, of course, that other students also, on occasion, have certain kinds of learning deficits that need to be addressed. That is true. Um, seems to me, though, that that uh, what what puts the athletes in a different category is that universities are knowingly using them for for non-academic purposes. That is, they are actively recruited to come to the university and to devote 35 or 45 or 55 hours each week to their sports uh, under the tutelage of their coaches so as to produce wins and championships. And they're promised that in, in exchange that uh, the compensation they will get will be a university education. So that that is the nature of the bargain that is made with that particular subset of students. And and so if, if we're admitting uh, athletes who we cannot reasonably expect to perform well in the classroom and we do not provide them the kind of uh, remedial services they need to get up to speed to do so. We at the university level are simply engaged in a, a shameless game of exploitation, and that is not the it is not the same with those other students who also may have deficiencies that need addressing. Uh, we we admitted them presumably uh, on the academic promise we saw in their applications, and we gave them the opportunity to come to the university. And we are going to give them the, the remedial support that we have available to meet their needs. And either they will succeed or they will fail. But they weren't brought to the campus to be exploited. And so we don't have quite the same uh, moral obligation, I would say, not quite the same moral obligation to meet the, the, their every need that we do vis-a-vis -vis the athletes. I mean, that, I guess that's, that would be my response. If I understood the question correctly, and I mean, if, if the if the uh, if the call. No, I think, I think you answered it. Um, I'll wait and see um, if, if there's a response. And um, okay, um, to everyone who is listening, whether you are um, online um, or listening by phone, if you're listening by phone um, and you have a, a have a question or comment, uh, please press one and then we'll pull you in. If you're listening online, I will uh, just read your question or comment uh, from the chat room. Um, and thanks again uh, for the person who did ask the question. Um, mm -hmm. I want to say we have some questions or comments. Uh, to everyone who is listening, this is my first time hosting the show by myself, so please uh, bear with me. Um, caller from area code 757, uh, last four digits is 1665. Um, if you don't have a question or comment, uh, just let me know. I'm trying to, uh, this is my, again, this is my first time doing this, uh, so please just bear with me. Uh, caller, you are now on the air. Go ahead. Hi, I was uh, calling in with a question. Okay, go ahead. I'm yeah, I'm interested to 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 get the 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 guest's opinion on who has the 
on who has the greater, who does he believe has the greater influence to really bring a change to this, to this problem that we're seeing? Uh, is it uh, is it the university themselves? Is it the is it the NCAA? Is there some sort of uh, regulation that we need in from a government level on a, on a state on a state basis? Uh, who has that greater influence to really bring a, an immediate change or even a the more the faster change to the system? Good question. Um, I mean, it seems to me that the, the greatest uh, prospect for change is going to come out of the courts. I mean, there are a number of, as, as I'm sure you're aware, there are a number of pending uh, lawsuits, that, class action lawsuits that have been brought by athletes and former athletes who are seeking a variety of um, rights that, that they have been denied in the past. And, you know, I think there's at least a, a very strong possibility that the O'Bannon lawsuit in particular uh, could very well succeed. And if that happens, the, it seems to me that the financial model of the NCAA is going to have to undergo major revision. Um, and, and once the financial model has to change, then, then it, really, it really does become possible to get down to a kind of nuts and bolts discussion of how to put the system back together. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, in the short term, there's at least a, a very real prospect that a number of pending court cases will force change on the NCAA and, and, uh, and, and its member institutions. Unfortunately, um, I have <laughs> just not very optimistic about the ability of universities to reform themselves. Um, I, th I think they are, universities are just now too addicted to the revenue streams that um, the football and, and, and basketball bring into the to their respective athletic programs that they're so addicted that they, they can't even contemplate serious reform. Uh, certainly, certainly, there's not going to be a, a single institution or a handful of institutions that are going to step forward and unilaterally disarm just to show a, a good example to others. That's not happening. So it's not going to be an internal thing. It's, it's going to have to be forced from the outside in one way or another. You know, maybe congressional action. That's another possibility. But, but I think the best prospect is is in the courts. Thank you. Do we do we have any good examples out there from universities, even if it's on a smaller level, on a Division two, maybe Division three, that are really uh, taking care of their students, athletes, have good policy and procedures in form that you're aware of? Yeah, uh, that's another fair question. I wish I I wish I knew more than I know uh, about how things are done at the, at the Division three level. I've heard good things uh, about the Division three model. But um, and, and, and you know it seems to me that at the division at, at division three uh, student athletes, which is a term I dislike by the way, but student athletes really are students first. That, that is that is the anecdotal evidence that I have heard about di division three sports. Agreed. Um, but but you know I just I, I, I wonder about the the feasibility of universalizing that model. And, and of uh, and of of pretending that athletes who are performing at, at the very top level, at the very top of their games, 
can really be expected to, to, you know, to minimize their investment in their sports in the way that maybe Division three athletes are, are willing to do or, or to reduce their investment in their sports. I, I just I wonder about that. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it could happen. Maybe it could, but it, it would take a, 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 real, um, a real philosophical turnaround in, in this country in order, in order for that to happen. Uh, agreed. It, it, it would seem to me that the, that the proof is kind of in the pudding, and if, if, and if you could at least show that success to the general public, then maybe you can get those sports fans behind the fact and also pushing the university to say, hey, this is something we really need to pay attention to. The masses are, the masses are looking at us. It, it seems mm-hmm. that if we, could, if we could put that example out there, uh, that it could that it could gain a little bit more a little bit more support. Yeah. You don't I, yeah, yeah I, I personally I don't I don't see this lot, I don't see the hundreds of people that really want to bring about this change. It, it seems like something that we, it seems that it's never that the rug has never been lifted that everything is everything that was ever swept under there is still there. And until it really sure. maybe it gets that it gets the media attention that it really deserves. I'm no, sorry for really you were breaking you, yeah. you're you're I'm breaking sorry. up a little bit for me. I, I'm not I'm not hearing you too well. Could you could you repeat that last uh, sentence or so? Sure, sure. I, I was uh, alluding to the fact that uh, that the issue the issue doesn't seem to have the media attention that it should have. It, it seems right. that the issues that have been swept under the rug are still there, and 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 until the the, the general public get behind. Uh, this need for change, it seems that it stays under there. And, and I'm saying that if we could, the proof is in the pudding, and if we could have this example of, of universities and what they're doing and what they're doing to produce student athletes and what their, their policies and procedures they have in place, when we could, we could show that to the general public or, or the media could show that to the general public and garner more mm-hmm. support around the subject. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I certainly agree that the media have been very slow to to jump on this bandwagon. I mean, I do think there's a kind of reform bandwagon that's slowly gathering momentum, but um, but but the, but the media have not have not been particularly helpful. I agree, and and in a way you can understand why. I mean, is ESPN going to? <laughs> To find a way to undermine the model that, that that has been so profitable for them. I mean, it's probably not. Probably they're not going to be inclined to do that. Absolutely, but, I agree. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, there is. I do think there there's there is a reform movement underway, and it is gathering strength. And and more you know more media people are beginning to pay attention. So there, there is more commentary about these issues today than there was, say, two years ago. Uh, that's for sure. So you know, maybe there are rays of hope here. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so we, the the general public, the sports fans that that are on board with this, that that are on board with this cause, who want to be a part of this change, what can we do? Do we, do we boycott our viewing of the sport? Do we? Do we send letters to the university? Do we, do we somehow try mm-hmm. to minimize or eliminate our support? What are we doing? Uh, that's a great question. I, I wish I had a, a great answer. 
but I, I will say this that you know if you're if you're um, an alumnus and you care about the, the fate of your own institution, write letters, write letters to your trustees, to your provost and your chancellor. Uh, don't don't let them ignore you. Or write to your legislators. You know, let let them know. Let the powers that be know that you're watching and that you're concerned, that you're you're morally outraged by by their failure to address these issues. Um, you you might not see immediate payoff, but I I do firmly believe that alumni can really make a difference. Institutions listen to their alumni. They they have to listen to their alumni. They have to care what they think. And of course, we know that there are plenty of alumni out there who are sending the other message. You know that that we've got to get our football team in the top ten, and and we've got to spend six million dollars on the next coach. There are plenty of alumni who feel that way, or at least some. And so the the alumni who who, who care about these other issues, who care about the educations that athletes are receiving. Who, who care about the model and the inequities that are that are built into that model, they they too need to be outspoken. So write your trustees, write your provosts, and write your legislators. And also, you know, consider consider making the occasional symbolic gesture at games. Hold up a sign that draws attention to well any of the any number of inequities that are in the system. Uh, you know you. you you can still work for the team. You can still go to the games, but but we fans um, have to become more cognizant of of the issues that are constraining the lives of our athletes. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your questions and your comments. I think that was a, a very great discussion. Thank you, Leon. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that Bye. question. All right, we're going to go to our next uh, caller, um, if you're ready, uh, Dr. Smith. Sure. We have another caller that has been waiting, area code 571. The last four digits are 7889. Caller, are you there? Yes, I am. Go ahead. Okay. Um, Well, first of all, Dr. Smith, thank you for being on the show this evening. I'm really enjoying listening to your comments, and I'm, I hope I can condense everything I've been taking notes. Um, one of the things you said that struck me was um, about the level at where this starts, and I am very passionate about that it starts at the lower level. It starts right sure. from kindergarten through 12th grade. Um I had some personal experience with some athletes um, that were freshmen in a very small rural school district, and they had been pushed, and they were struggling trying to pass Romeo and Juliet, but because it was a small school and they were very gifted um, on the football team, they had been kept being promoted. And um, basically I was teaching them how to read and pass Romeo and Juliet in my study hall. Um, so I've seen it start at the smallest level with the smallest school district, and I actually think that it even starts before then. I think it starts with parents and putting their children in so many different programs um, 
and that those extracurricular things come before their schoolwork. I mean, yeah. 14 million yeah. Americans are functional illiterates in this country. <laughs> yes. That, yes. That, to me, is just appalling. Yes. No, we and, have a literacy crisis. Yeah, we have a literacy crisis in this country. And, and, and so for it to be just, like, now being somewhat dumped on at the university level, and I'm not mm-hmm. saying the teacher problem is the whole system. It's our values. We have the wrong priorities in this country. And I personally don't see that changing because we value athletes and entertainers so much. Um, mm-hmm. I personally have banned all pro sports for the last 10 years because of my belief in this. Um, it, it's just... Yeah. I. I mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I know I'm just one person, but I don't know how to get people on this on the same bandwagon of understanding how detrimental this is to our society. Yes, um, I, I wish I could disagree with something you had just said, <laughs> but uh, right. I, I really I can't. I. I I'm with you on this. I think it it is a it's a cult it's a cultural problem uh for the whole nation. And somehow or other we've we've got to figure out a way to get academics back where it should be as the number one priority in our schools. Right. Well and, I mean I've been thinking about a, a situation we had here a few years ago where our football team was doing our high school football team was doing so well that the next year a heated field went in um, over some programs that had to be cut. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, I mean, so when I say it's at a local level, it definitely is at the local level. It starts there. I I just, I think it's bad and I don't know how to fix it either. Yeah, Yeah, I know. know. And especially then Uh, we look at, 70% 70% of the inmates in America's prisons don't even have a fourth grade reading level. I mean, right there, that should be screaming something to the whole country. Like, obviously, there is a, a correlation between the reading and not doing well and all that. I mean, it's not just with the athletics. It's all kinds of things. Right, right. Yes, I mean, right, L- lower, lower reading abilities. Right. all sorts of social, social, bad social outcomes, all sorts of things, yeah. So um, I think we need to form this um, coalition to um, make people aware of how, how, and I don't know how to do that, how, how reading is the key to everything. And I'm always telling my students that because I teach at the sixth grade level, uh-huh. and I'm, I uh-huh. always tell my students that you cannot do anything without reading and math. You cannot. You have to have this. I mean, my own yeah. father was functionally illiterate, and I didn't even know that. That made sense later on in life when I learned that, that he taught mm-hmm. himself to read as quite older. I mean, I was already married and had children. So, mm-hmm. um, and I believe part mm-hmm. of his problem was dyslexia, which that's another whole thing. But, um, mm-hmm. but he was a successful man, but he had to work even harder. Right. People, right. People yeah. don't realize yeah. that. And I think of these yeah. athletes 
who's going to read their contract to them and be honest <laughs> when you're making millions? Right. Yeah, right. So, yes. Okay. Well, well I, I, think, I, I think also before you hang up, Cindy, I think also uh, we have to think back to people like Dexter Manley who went all the way through school, uh, even college, and, and eventually uh, became um, a great player in the NFL and then right. uh, finally just broke down one day about his inability uh, to read. And he's not the only uh, athlete that this happened to. I mean, uh, but years later we still we still have this problem and um, – not enough people are bringing awareness to the issue. Not enough people are are, are standing up for for these athletes. Uh, we we're standing back and allowing them to be exploited, allowing them to be abused by the system, uh, all because of a dollar. Exactly. Uh, you know, and and, and I remember uh, just a couple of years ago when when the whole uh, Penn State scandal. Uh, went on. I mean, that that coverage went on for quite some time, and you know, we we learned that Penn State's football program uh, makes sixty million dollars a year. I mean, football is only four months, and yeah. they make sixty million dollars in four months. So, I mean, if they only have maybe four or five home games, six if you're lucky. Um, during the course of the season. So that's about $10 million per game. And, right. you know, yes, yes, you know, um, schools are giving uh, kids scholarships, but at the same time, um, you know, they, it's costing the, the student more than what they're being given. Uh, you know, it, Tuition may be fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, but what's that to a university that's making sixty million dollars or fifty million dollars? It doesn't matter because you know it's more of a business than it is, you know, uh, an educational institution. Um, Mm You know, yeah. so yeah. Um, it, it just makes me think think about things like that. And, and, and Dr. Smith, like you said earlier, if you truly care, um, you know, if you truly care about these athletes or if you truly care about these students, then things bother you. It, it, it's hard to yeah. it's hard to look at yourself in the mirror. It's hard to tolerate um, these things when uh, when you see things like this. When 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 you know, instead of calling Mary Willingham a troublemaker, you know, why not, you know, praise this woman who, who brought light to uh, something that's definitely wrong at the University of North Carolina and other um, institutions across the country. Yeah, right. Now, the, the reflex to denounce Mary Willingham was, was very troubling. Um, I, can't, I can't quite get over it, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Um, it, to me, if you, instead of trashing her, they should be striving to, all right, if this is the data she's collected, let's see if we can't 
find data that disproves that rather than just trashing her. I mean, right, right. Yeah. See that with the the educated thing to do, the moral <laughs> thing to do. Um, but the whole athletic thing is just a huge business. That's all I see it as. I don't see it as looking at these young men and women going into sports, young men going into these sports, being recruited by these schools. I don't see them being looked at as the young the young adult that they are. I see them looked at as, right. <clears throat> excuse me, how much they, can they bring our school? Right, right. Yeah, it's, it, there's a perverse incentive structure in place that, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes it uh, in, impossible for, for administrators, for, for coaches, for the, for the stewards of the system to do the right thing because their paychecks depend exactly. on they're not doing the right thing. Exactly. So, um, you know, I one, would not one, see it for shoes. It's bad enough being in my shoes as a public school teacher and seeing some of the things that go on. Right. Right. So one way, perhaps, to, to fix the system or to at least to, to uh, pry open, um, you know, some, some sunlight, at least, uh, would be to change the, the financial model so that so that the, the, the athletes themselves have certain economic rights that they're deprived of today. Uh-huh. Um, so that all the money is not funneled into the hands of, of NCAA officials and administrators and coaches, but they actually have to share some of that money with the students, with the athletes. Um, that would be, at least that would open the possibility that the athletes would actually be regarded as as partners, as people who have rights to be advanced and protected. Um, I mean, that might be, and this is this is why I, I at least am pinning my hopes on the O'Bannon case that um, is going to be set to open in June. Um, it, it, it's a way of getting the athletes at the table and, and giving, giving them some bargaining rights and and forcing the system to bend to to acknowledge the existence of those rights. And, and, and until that happens, I'm not sure that anything meaningful can change. Mm. Wow. That, that, that is a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. I mean, the, 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 athletes, the athletes are just, they're voiceless. They're absolutely voiceless. And, and, and they don't, in the current system, they're they're not even inclined to seek their voice because they don't want to anger their coaches, they don't want to disrupt their 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 possible path to the pros, they don't want to overturn the apple cart. They're they are forced into a kind of subordinate position, and until they have a voice at the table, I'm I'm afraid that um, the stewards of the system will just find ways to tinker around the edges without addressing the real problems. Right. Uh, that's what that's what scares me. I mean, reform <laughs> is afoot. That, reform that, is afoot. Even the NCAA is talking Cindy, about Cindy, thank you so much for calling in. You're welcome. Uh, appreciate it Thanks. so much. Stay, stay, stay on the line um, and, and feel free to join the conversation at, at any point uh, during the rest of the show.
Um, I want to read uh, some comments uh, coming from the chat line. And the comments that I have been reading um, is actually from a, uh, a gentleman who I went to high school with. Um, he was on our, our, um, uh, our state championship basketball team. Um, his name is uh, Calvin Smith. He's, um, he's actually in um, higher education now. And uh, one of the, the last things that he said was, um, um, let me see if I can go back and find it. Um, I don't disagree about exploitation, but I would argue any student that is accepted without the appropriate qualifications are being exploited for their tuition and fees. Academia is a business. Um, and then I think this uh, uh, went along with Leon's uh, uh, remarks, and that is uh, Division three athletes generally did not qualify um, for Division one. Um, or are not talented enough. So thank you so much, uh, Calvin, uh, for tuning in with us. And Calvin um, is listening um, online. So thank you so much, Calvin. Uh, Dr. Smith, any comments before we move on? Well, that, that, that is an interesting observation, that uh, every, every student is exploited for tuition money. Uh, and I guess I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I can say that, um, and, and, I, and I mentioned this to him uh, through the chat, um, I can say that, you know, I was disturbed when, uh, when I looked at uh, my tuition and fees and saw that I was paying an athletic fee, and I was like, well, wait a minute, I don't play sports uh, here at school, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I didn't really attend many, uh, many games, but here I am paying um, an athletic fee that was... I think it was four thousand dollars a semester or something like that, um, and you know, so you know, I had a problem with that, and you know, and he mentioned all of the other fees, and he said, you know, you should be upset about fees for a dance studio that's just as expensive, and you um, don't reap any of the uh, of the benefits unless you know you're a dance or theater major, so. Uh, you know, I think he, uh, I yeah. think he has made some valid points. I mean, we uh, we are exploited, and a lot of times we don't think about it. Uh, you know, unless the media brings it to our attention, or or, or we do sit back and and we say, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't I don't have anything to do with that. Why is it that I should have to pay for that? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's very true. <laughs> uh, I guess. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's. As taxpayers, we we don't get to decide how our dollars get used either. <laughs> we pay for all sorts of things we don't approve of. Yeah, that 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 is true. Um, <laughs> something that we brought up on the show, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, and that is seventy-four uh, percent of uh, of U.S. high school seniors are below grade level in math and sixty-two percent in reading. Yet graduation rates are at an all-time high. Um, and and these uh, this proficiency rate is um, is lower than it was in 1992. Um, as a college professor, how prepared do you think freshmen are when they arrive on a college campus? And what should schools um, grade K through 12 do in order to uh, better prepare uh, students for college? Hmm. 
Um, well, to answer your first question, I, I have to say, you know, because I teach at UNC Chapel Hill, I'm, I'm kind of spoiled, I think. Uh, I think most of the students who come to UNC are pretty well prepared, though I continue to be surprised year after year at how how many of my students in the big survey courses that I teach in the history department, how many of them still still struggle to articulate coherent arguments and to marshal evidence uh, to advance an argument and to develop a, a logical strain of thought that they can sustain all the way throughout a paper. Um, there are there are there are there's plenty of room for improvement in in the writing abilities of, of even good very bright students and so the one thing that I would in, in the best of all possible worlds at least uh, what, what I would what I would have high schools do would be to have students read and write a whole lot more than they're doing now um, I, and I mentioned earlier that uh, I have a, a son who's graduated from high school next month here, here in the Chapel Hill School District. And you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to badmouth my own school district, but um, I don't believe that my son has written a single meaningful research paper in his high school career. I've never seen him write a paper more than a few pages long, and I, I have to believe that, you know, when he shows up in a college classroom next year, he's going to be, well, at least um, less practiced than he should be at developing good, coherent arguments and, and marshalling evidence for those arguments, at, at, at developing a, a persuasive voice as a writer. He just isn't as practiced as he should be. And I think that is a universal phenomenon. I think our, our high school students, our, our, our secondary school students generally, aren't writing enough, and they're not forced to read enough. And I, I, it's easy for me to say, I know. I, I, you know the, what, what this would mean, of course, is that we'd have to pour more resources into our schools, so teachers would have smaller classrooms, and they would have the time to actually read all those papers. And so it's easy for me to say. But... I think that's what needs to be done, and I think we need to face up to that reality. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, um, I don't think money is the issue. I think that better mm -hmm. use of uh, the money is an issue. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, and that's just from uh, working in, in public schools uh, for the past uh for the past uh, six years, um, I, I think that uh, there's more than enough money, um, you know, floating around school districts, but I think that, uh, you know, the money could be used better. Uh, you know, instead of creating positions that aren't really necessary and then, you know, paying people, um, you know, mm -hmm. the six-figure salaries um, yeah. may not necessarily be the answer or spending a lot of money on professional development, um, you know, that teachers aren't really benefiting from. If we were huh. to take the money that, that we have and, and use it for things that, uh, that benefit the kids, and I think a lot of times the children 
are left out of the discussion. And, and the reason why I say that is because of, um, you know, the thing, the, the, the initiatives that come about every year, um, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder who came up with these things and how is it going to benefit our children. And a lot of times uh, we as teachers don't see that, and it becomes very frustrating. And mm-hmm. and every year, uh, you know, something is, is brought to our attention or something is presented, and it's the best thing since sliced bread, and, you know, it's going to increase student achievement. It's going to raise test scores. Um, it's going to close the achievement gap. And then at the end of the school year or in the summer, um, the test scores are, are the same or uh, they're actually worse than what they were the year before. And now we have another initiative. And so, so many things come in and right. out of the school system. Right. And, you know, one, we, we, we don't give things uh, time to work that may, that may be uh, beneficial. And then, two, I wonder how much, again, how much of the conversation is about the kids. And I wonder... Um, you know, how often uh, teachers are allowed to, to have a say in uh, what is coming into the building or what uh, coming into the classrooms because, you know, you, you, you see what's going on and then you, you listen to or you talk to your, your, your colleagues and it just makes you scratch your head because you, you know right. after being in a classroom, um, you know, every day with your students and you begin to, to form relationships with them, you begin to, you know, learn their strengths and their weaknesses, not so much be, because of test data, but just through your interaction. Um, so you learn, right. you know, about their backgrounds. You learn, um, you know, you, you, you learn where they actually need help, but yet, you can't focus on those things because you have all of these other things in front of you. You know, you don't have time to address the real issues because, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of teachers say, you know, refer to the dog and pony show. You know, uh, you right. have to make sure that if, if someone is coming into your room, then you have to have certain things here and there. Um, you have to make, uh, you know, certain um I don't know, worksheets or graphic organizers or whatever the case may be, textbooks, any any um, manipulatives that may be there, you have to make sure that, that, that you're using these things, and it may not necessarily be what you're saying. Yeah, now. yeah. And, and, and yeah, so, that, that. go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say that has to be very frustrating. Yeah, it has to be. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that... Um, there are tried and true methods that you know will work and they involve hands-on instruction and getting to know your students and pushing them hard. And, and yet you're, you're uh, having to jump through bureaucratic hurdles all the time. That, that's got to be frustrating. Yeah. Um, I, I do not, I do not envy K through 12 teachers. I, I mean, you're doing the Lord's work. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you. It's nice that someone knows that. <laughs> uh, let, let, let's jump into um, uh, what is your philosophy on education? 
what do you what do you think about education? What do you think about schooling? What do you think about uh, about teaching? Um, what is your philosophy there? Well, I, you know, I've I've um, in my classrooms, I, I've always tried to make my teaching uh, a dialogue whenever possible, so that you know st- students aren't simply being lectured at or um, having information funneled in their direction, but that they are, you know, they're actively engaging with me and, and participating in a kind of dialogue about whatever subject we have to be talking about that day. I mean, my, my you know, insofar as I have a, a philosophy of, of an educational philosophy, it's, it's that uh, students have, have to have their minds engaged, enlivened somehow. And, and once that happens, um, they need to be invited to uh, to reach for high standards, and you know, and, and to, to do their best to um, to participate in their own learning. So it's, it's, uh, that's a very um, um, vague and bland um, <laughs> articulation of my teaching philosophy, but but I do I, I do try to apply that pretty much every day in one way or another. So I, you know, I, I don't like um, straight lecturing very much at all. I, I, I try to keep it to a minimum. And I, you know, I try to build Q&A into every presentation. And um, I, I try to get my, my students engaged in whatever it is we happen to be doing. Because education is about discovery. It's, it's about discovery. They need to be discovering things for themselves of course, with the teacher's assistance and guidance, but um, it, it needs to be that they need to experience a kind of awakening uh, on their own, and so they have to be actively they have to be active participants in the whole process. Okay, I I, I mean I don't disagree with you one bit. I mean I, um, you know I I think that. Uh, learning should be more student-centered, and, and I really believe that uh, the one who is who is working is the one who is learning. Um, yeah, yeah, and, right. You know, because you know whether you're a teacher or a parent, there's there's only so much that you can teach a child. There's only so much you can teach anyone. Um, it's not until they have the actual experience themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You know when they when they get the full understanding or better understanding of what it is that you're trying to teach. So the way that I try to teach is, if it's a new concept, then I'll introduce it, um, and then you know, um, I like to model first, and it doesn't matter what it uh-huh. is that I'm teaching. I like I like to model it first. Um, you know where the student. At, at, at that particular time, um, I really don't want um, you know them to ask too many questions um, during the modeling phase because I just want them to pay attention. Um, and then after that is over, you know, then you know they're free to, to to ask questions, which you know leads us to the next phase, which is you know sort of the the, the guided practice where um, we're doing it together. So now it's me right. repeating it, but the students are now involved, and we're doing it together and sort of iron, ironing out, um, you know, 
any problems that they may encounter later on. And then once, you know, they complete that phase and then they move into the to the independent practice where now they get a chance to show me that they understood what it was that I was trying to teach. And, and I have found that, you know, they can, can not only show you uh, what it is that you were trying to get over to them, but they can add a little something uh, to it as well because my experience from doing it is not going to be their experience. So when they do mm-hmm. it, they not only have what what it is that I was trying to uh, to teach them, but also what they learned on their own because each experience is going to be different. And so, um, you know, that's, that's the model I try to use whenever I'm teaching. And I feel like the more the students are involved, the more the students are engaged, the more they are going mm-hmm. to to learn uh, from any educational experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are your subjects? Right now I'm actually an interventionist for reading and math. So I guess mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I guess the easiest way to put it is, you know, I, I – I help strengthen um, students' um, abilities in, in the areas uh, where they are weak. Um, but I have taught everything except science. So I've taught, um, I've taught reading, I've taught writing, I've taught uh, social studies, um, I've taught math, mm-hmm. and I've taught fourth, mm-hmm. sixth, and eighth grade. So I've taught everything except science. Wow. <laughs> wow, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and modeling uh, is is a, is a is an interesting word. It's a, it's a, it's an important word for the classroom. It seems to me. I I will say that I mean I I teach only one subject, um, history, all the time. But the one thing that I have always tried to model, I will say, in my classrooms, is excitement for the subject and and an enduring intellectual curiosity. And, I, and I've done that because. Because the people in my experience as a student, when I was an undergraduate way back when, the people who did that were the ones who really made an impact on me. The, the people who, who showed how exciting intellectual discovery could be, uh, just, just through their demeanor, through the way they talked about the subjects they, they cared about, um, they they engaged me and they they hooked me in a way that other other teachers didn't and so I've always tried to do that I don't know that I've always been successful but um, <laughs> but I, I sure give it the college try <laughs> I'm I'm sure that you did um, this is also coming from um, from uh, Calvin uh, in the chat room um, and he says that. Uh, parents are very important because you you, you cannot do it without uh, support. Um, right. Right. So uh, we, we've had That's that discussion, right. I think, over the last month about uh, the role that parents play or or should play. Yeah. Right. It's not just a K through twelve issue. It's a, it goes to infancy, all the way down to infancy. Um, <laughs> That, that is that that is true. Um, <laughs> you sent me. Um, um, I had a chance to 
to read your speech uh, for an award that, that you recently won. And um, I didn't uh, read the entire uh, speech yet, but I, but I read most of it, and, and I was very inspired. And so, um, and I think this is where your, uh, the things that you mentioned in your speech, uh, this, it, it really, you know, um, I guess let our readers know where your, your passion comes from. Um, about students mm-hmm. making the most of every opportunity, especially when it comes to education. Um, so if you could, right. uh, I mean, you don't have to talk about the award um, unless you want to, but if you could talk about where your passion comes from, um, you know, I think that would be very beneficial uh, and kind of bring home mm-hmm. uh, why you have the feeling that, that you do uh, when it comes to, um, ath- uh, athletics and education, um, you know. So, w- will you share mm-hmm. your 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 background and you know even from when you were a child until now and sure. the things that happened uh, that kind of got you to where you are today? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've I've always felt a very powerful sense of gratitude toward public higher education in this country because. It was the availability of affordable higher education that made it possible for me to go to college and and thus to have my life changed by college. Um, and so I, I've always I've always been um, grateful that I've I've been able to live out my career as a, as an academic at a public institution because public higher education really means a lot to me. Um, and it's and it's because I. I, I started out well. I, I was, um, as I as I mentioned in in this uh, this, this speech I, I gave at this uh, banquet a few weeks ago. I I was a first generation high school graduate. Uh, I, I, you know, I come from a family that did not have educational credentials to speak of, um, and we weren't poverty stricken, but we were. You know, I had very modest means. And uh, my, my, my parents came from um, um, fairly deprived backgrounds, I would say. But for whatever reason, however they did it, they, they managed to raise me with the expectation that I would someday go to college. Um, but they didn't prepare me terribly well for college because they didn't know how. And in high school, I was a fairly indifferent student. Um, I had reasonably good basic skills, but but I I was not uh, a star by any stretch of the imagination, um, and and so I when I when I went up in college, uh, first at, at Towson University in Maryland, and then in Northern Illinois University, uh, I, I transferred there as a sophomore. Uh, both uh, fine state institutions, but also very affordable and uh, relatively easy to get into. That was good for me because I, I had um, very mediocre credentials coming out of high school. Um, but, but when I got to those two places, I, I floundered around for several semesters. Uh, I was <clears throat> you know, not very interested in the material. I, I didn't know how to do well. I earned very poor grades in my, my freshman year. Uh, I had a barely 2.0 GPA at the end of my freshman year. Um, I gave at least some passing thought between my freshman and sophomore years to just dropping out of school. And 
And that didn't happen, lucky for me. What happened instead was that I eventually took a couple of history classes that really lit a fire under me. And I, I got to know some faculty, this is especially at Northern Illinois University, who took me under their wing and, and mentored me and brought me along and, and kind of taught me how to develop my skills. And in the space of a couple of years, but you know, between well, about halfway through my sophomore year to the beginning of my senior year, I developed into a very good student. And um, and, and, and we all decided, my mentors and I decided that I'd, I'd even go into grad school and, and pursue history, historical studies in, in graduate school. Uh, and I went to a very good grad school. But this is a completely, completely unexpected, unforeseen outcome uh, that no one could have predicted. Uh, my friends, many of my friends are still floored by it. They still can't, still can't believe that I went to a grad school and got a PhD in a field that they had never even heard of. But how did it happen? It, it happened because I had lots of caring faculty mentors who lit a fire under me, who brought me along, who, who, who imparted to me the, the, the skills and the perspectives I needed uh, and, and who changed my life in the process. Uh, you know, I, I, have a, I have a life and a career and a, and a set of perspectives today that certainly were never promised me and, and that most people would not have predicted for me when I was 18 or 19 years old. But I have them because, because I, I, I achieved in a setting where it was possible for me to have this fire lit under me and, and for me to go off in, a, in an unanticipated direction. And, and the reason I, I talked about all of those things at this conference I attended in, in South Carolina a few weeks ago was that uh, it was a sports conference, and athletes were at the center of, of all of the various panel discussions I attended. And I wanted to make the point that, you know, my own experience has taught me how important it is for every student, every athlete included, to be given the opportunity to have an epiphany like that, to have his life or her life changed by a process of intellectual discovery and, and through forging relationships of, of uh, you know, healthy relationships of mentor-mentee relationships with faculty. That's what happened to me. It changed my life. And I think every athlete ought to have the opportunity to have his or her life changed in the same way. Uh, <laughs> I think um, I think that you have a very um, inspirational story because I think a lot of times we we tend to stereotype uh, people and we think that just because they are in a good position uh, today, at least from what we can see, uh, we think that it has always been that way, or we think that you know that was the past. Um, that people saw them on 20, 30, you know, 40 years, it doesn't matter right. how long ago. Um, right. right. But a lot yeah. of times, you know, we, we, we look at people and, and, and we think that the role was easy for them um, or we think that, you know, uh, they, they've always been on this path, but then when we begin to talk to people or when we, when we read speeches or we read articles, um, or listen to interviews, we've learned that a lot of, a, a lot of us have uh, similar stories. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, in, in my household growing up, um, education was not that big of a deal. Um, it was a it, it was a big enough deal that we went that we were not allowed to fail. But at the same time, there was not a lot of education in my household. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my my mom's uh, mother, uh, you know, had about nine or ten kids, and only one of them went to college. Um, you know, and and earned their degree. Um, you know, and so while they knew, hey, you need an education, they really did not know how to promote education within our household. Um, my mom did not know how to do that. Um, you know, for mm-hmm. us, as long as we did not bring home an F, we were fine. Um, right. You know, mm-hmm. but but luckily um, for me, uh, you know, I, I'm grateful to God that I that I had a different mindset that I wanted more uh, than I was able to see as a child growing up. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I had a teacher um, in the tenth grade who who helped me see things um, in a different light, who who let me see that if I continued on the path that I was on, then, you know, I was headed for destruction. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, and, and, and today when I talk to people and, and I tell them the things that I used to do growing up and I tell them, that, you know, the types of people I used to hang around and, you know, what, what my, my middle school teachers and, and some of my high school teachers uh, thought of me, it's a huge shock to them. Um, because yeah. they just, um, you know, don't see me as this troubled kid growing up. Right. And so, right. Um, you know, for me, that's what drives me every day. That that's my that's where my passion comes from every day. And I don't care if it's an athlete. Um, you know, I don't care. You know what what a student um, is involved in, as far as extracurricular activities they are still students first. And so Mm -hmm. success for everyone is different. Whether Mm -hmm. you play sports, whether you're a musician, whether you're a dancer, or whether you're that kid who really just, you know, when high school is over, you want to just be a mechanic. You know, it, it, it does not matter. Success is different for everyone. And so I feel like it is my job, it is my responsibility to make sure that every student um, who enters my classroom, and even students who are never on my roster, it is, it is my responsibility to make sure that these students understand what success is and it becomes clear to them where they are going, where they want to go, and they know uh, what it's going to take for them to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's the right set of attitudes you've got there. Yeah, I mean, uh, education is a path to redemption. Uh, it, it, it can be anyway. It, uh, it's, it, it can turn around a life. Um, it can enrich a life. It should enrich a life, and yeah, it can be done in. in a variety of ways, but um, as educators, we, we have to be 
sure that that is always our priority, it seems to me, that we, we've always got that objective in mind, that we're trying to, we're trying to help people change their lives in, in, in ways that they, they want to, of course. That, that, that is true. Um, can you think of any, uh, you know, sort of uh, student-athlete stories um, that may be near and dear to you, um, either because the student uh, was abused by the system or because a student was able to shine on the field or the court um, and in the classroom. Can you think of, of, of any stories that are kind of personal um, to you, whether it's, you know, it's your own story or, uh, you know, a friend or, or, or a student you may have uh, sort of come in contact with in the past? That's um, that's a surprisingly tough question for me, and it's, <laughs> this is because I mean, I, <laughs> given my investment in these issues, you'd think I, I would have lots of contact with athletes, I, but I actually have not in my in my career. I I um, I mean, this is kind of interesting and it's a little bizarre in itself. Uh, in my 24 years at UNC. I have taught a grand total of two revenue sport athletes, one football player and one men's basketball player. That's it, two. Now, I have had other other athletes, golfers and, and swimmers and women's soccer players and fencers and so on. Um, but um, the, the, the revenue sport players, for, for whatever reason, just had not – I've not flocked to my classes. What can I say? Um, <laughs> well, that's just um, say, how did they do in their other classes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but there is, there is one. I did have this one encounter with a football player that has, uh-huh. that has left – uh, a mark on me, I, I must say. Okay. I didn't get to know him well. I, I didn't get to know him well. I don't know exactly what the outcome was for him, whether whether he even graduated. I'm, I'm not sure. But what I remember so vividly about this guy was that he he would come into class, and he came to every single class. He never skipped lecture. Okay. Uh, but but he, invariably, he would sit in the back corner of the room and sort of make a show of, of paying attention for a while, but then he would just drift off to sleep about halfway through the class. He was just exhausted. This was a 9 a.m. class, and he was, he was so tired, so worn down from morning workouts or the afternoon practice from the day before, I don't know. He, that he couldn't he couldn't hang in there he just he was always falling asleep and he never took any notes uh, i don't know whether this was because he he just couldn't keep up he couldn't he couldn't stay alert long enough or whether he had somebody else taking notes for him i don't know but he was a, a most unusual character in my class because well not only was he you know six five and 280 or whatever, but but he <laughs> he had he had a very different uh, very different way of handling himself in class, and I, I have to say he he really struggled really struggled in my class. He made it through, but it was it was tough for him. 
Um, and I always wondered, I always wondered whether the, the regimen that he was put through, the, the kind of physically exhausting regimen that, that he had to go through, was not one of the reasons that um, he just couldn't really perform up to snuff in my class because he just didn't have, didn't have the time to put into it, the time and the energy to put into it. Um, but that, as I said, that was that was maybe oh, 15 years ago now, and okay. <laughs> maybe word got maybe word got around after that that Smith's Western Civ was not the course to take. So I, I haven't seen another football player. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Maybe he's still playing in the NBA or the NFL. Who knows? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of lost. I kind of lost track of him. Okay, uh, Calvin <laughs> uh, again in the chat room. Uh, Calvin uh, asked. Uh, he says, in the higher education setting, there are other opportunities to get the type of mentorship that we've been talking about outside of academia, do you believe in the value of those experiences? Uh, good question. And sure, sure, I, I agree. Coaches, of course, can be great mentors, and, and as can other people in, in the institution. Um, and that those experiences can be quite valuable. I, I don't deny that. Um, I, but I guess my... my point would would be that that um, since we are after all institutions of higher learning uh, we should be focused first on academic achievement and opening paths to academic academic achievement for our students and those other those other forms of mentorship are, are valuable and, and 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 can supplement what we're doing in the classrooms but but we can never we can never forget the, the, the priority uh, that should be accorded academic achievement at institutions of higher learning because that's, that, that is, after all, our, our reason for existence. So uh, it's a fair question. I, I, I see the point he's making, but, but um, I, you know, I still think there's something special about the faculty-student relationship, and, uh, and that, that always has to be cultivated, both by faculty and by the students. All right. Uh, tough, <laughs> tough question, possibly. Okay. What, and, and, and feel free, again, to be as honest as possible. Um, and, and a conversation that I had with someone uh, last night uh, made me think of this. But what do you think, first, what do you think when you see athletes uh, being interviewed, <laughs> um, um, you know, either before, during, or after a game, the next day, whatever the case may be. Uh-huh. And you can obviously tell that there's a disconnect somewhere because you're sitting there watching the TV and you're trying to figure out what are they saying, you know, and, and you're trying to make sense of what are you saying. What goes through your mind uh, when you see things like that? And also, mm-hmm. what do you think about um, what what comes to mind when you hear or or see um, stories where athletes um, have to file bankruptcy or or are broke, whether their career lasts five, ten, twenty years, um, however long it may 
it may go on for. What do you? Yeah. What are some of the first things that come to your mind when you when you see these things, when you witness these things? Yeah, yeah. Those two questions, it seems to me, are related. I, I see them as related. I guess you do too. That's why you ask them one after the other, um, because what I think, what I think when I hear these stories, and, and when I hear the, the, you know, that the occasionally inarticulate athlete um, making a comment after a game, I think the same thing. I think, wow, that person has been ill-served. We we have not done that person a favor. We're we're we have failed that person. Um, isn't it something like 80% of uh, NFL players ultimately either declare bankruptcy or find themselves in financial distress of some sort? I mean, <laughs> the number, the number I, I think, is pretty high. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I mean, it's just it's staggering. I read this in Sports Illustrated not long ago. Just staggering, and and you know clearly. This means that we're we are failing to impart important lessons to, to those guys when they're in our classrooms. I mean, we should be we should absolutely be teaching them how to be how to manage their finances, how, how to how to stay on top of of money questions. Well, why are we not doing that? I, I if if it's not part of the curriculum, it ought to be part of what the athletic department is doing. It seems to me that, there, that somehow or other. Those guys, and not just people who are headed to the NFL, but everybody, uh, have to have to get a kind of financial numeracy through their college experience. And and as for the, the sometimes embarrassing comments that get made, I mean, um, first of all, of course, there are plenty of very articulate athletes, um, um, but you know, it's 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 hard. Unless you hear the same person doing it repeatedly, it, it's hard to know exactly what to make of it, of course, because sometimes people have a kind of a conversational style that doesn't necessarily give a very good indication of, of, of what their verbal abilities are, but it's just a kind of conversational style. Um, so it's not necessarily a, uh, uh, an indicator of, of ability or intelligence that they're, they're saying some clumsy things. Um, but, you know, when they're repeatedly making grammatical errors and so on, it, it does make you think, well, why have we not reached him yet? Why have we not reached her yet? Why here two or three years into, into a college career are they still making errors like that? There's just... We're failing that person, and and I, I think um, it speaks to the, the kind of institutional values that that drive the big time sport enterprise these days. We're we are not taking seriously our obligations to these athletes in all sorts of ways. We're we're just not. We're, we're letting them rack up the concussions. You know, we we don't give them long term medical benefits. We're neglecting their educations in so many different ways. We're failing to prepare them for financial management later in life. Um, it's it's just a, it's a sad situation. How much of the responsibility should be placed on the athlete? I tell you, I mean, maybe this is an unusual um, point of view. Uh, 
But I am, I am inclined to leave the athletes almost entirely blameless, I have to tell you, because... Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, almost entirely, because they grow up in a system that conditions them to, to do the things that they do and to behave the way they do and, and, and not to see the things that we think they ought to be seeing. It, it is a system that um, I'm just... It's exploitative in it, by its essence, and uh, it makes it very difficult, I think, for people to take personal responsibility for themselves. Now, maybe I'm overstating things, but as I mentioned earlier tonight, I mean, athletes are, are basically voiceless. They're, they have no way to organize. They can't, they can't very well talk back to their coach or else they're going to have to surrender playing time. Uh, or, you know, otherwise mar their athletic experience while they're at the university. They're kind of, they're, they're in a subordinate position necessarily by the nature of the beast. And um, they're, they're also navigating a system, a curricular system that has been constructed long before they've arrived, where patterns have already been established by where where um, uh, habits of uh, major selection and course selection and career planning are already well established, and where and they walk into the, into that environment, and they naturally just follow the long established patterns. I mean, I, I think it's maybe an exceptionally strong-willed athlete can can fight back against that, but. It's going to take an exceptional kind of person, it seems to me. So um, maybe you see it differently, and I'd be interested to hear how you how you look at it. But, uh, but I, I tend I I tend to leave the athletes blameless. Well, uh, I, I partially agree, and, and and here's why I say that I, I agree wholeheartedly with you and 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 to those of you uh who are still hanging in there with us and, and still listening please feel free to join the conversation at any time uh, it is okay if you disagree uh jump in at any time um but i do think that you know coming through a system that is just broken from from, from the top to the bottom um mm-hmm. You know where where athletes um, and all of our students, you know, are kind of put put it put in an uh, uncomfortable position uh, where they feel like they don't have a voice. I think that at some point you have to take responsibility for your own action uh, mm-hmm. because at some point someone is going to try to teach you differently now. It's kind of hard to break habits that you, you know, that you've had for years, but at some point you have to take responsibility. And um, also, I feel like they do have a voice, but usually um, if one person speaks up, just like Mary Willingham did, if one person speaks up, you're usually labeled as a troublemaker and, you know, they either get rid of you or you're kind of forced out. Right, but but I, you know I always think back to the civil rights movement, where you know if it were not for people like Martin Luther King, um, you know our country mm-hmm. would not 
at least be in the shape that it is today. And I had this conversation with a number of people, uh, a number of people in regards to um, the L.A. Clippers uh, incident, you know, about a month ago. Right, and that right. is, I understand that 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 this is these players' job. I understand that they need to feed their families. I understand they have bills to pay, et cetera. I, I get that. But there are people who who died for standing up for what they yeah. believe in. Martin uh, Luther right, King, right. you know, in his 30s, lost his life uh, um, as a young man, lost his life fighting a battle that he was never going to reap the benefits, never going to reap the, the, the rewards, but he did it so that his children and other people's children would not have to endure the things that he did. So if a man right. is willing to lose his life behind what he believes in, then surely we can lose paycheck because a life is more valuable than a paycheck. So I think that yeah. what what needs yeah. to happen is that, uh, you know, at some point we have to take responsibility uh, for the for these exploitations. And maybe yeah. you know you know you know one guy standing up, maybe that one guy won't accomplish. Uh, much because he may not get a lot of support, but it may be the start of something. I am a teacher right. who who feels the pain of my students, who feels the pain of my colleagues, and so for me, um, I don't have a problem speaking out. I don't have a problem, uh, you know, discussing the issues, you know, and that's why we've been doing this for the last month. I don't have a problem with that because no, I don't want to lose my job. Um, I love what I do. Uh, teaching is fun for me. Like I, I'm excited, you know, at every point uh, because I get to go and, and, and try to help kids, you know, see a different way, help kids see a better way. So I love it. But, um, you know, if it came down to it, I honestly, um, like you said earlier in the, in, the, in the conversation, I have to be able to look at myself. I had to be able mm-hmm. to sleep at night. And so because of that, the well-being of my, of my students, of my children, is very important to me. And so mm-hmm. if someone, you know, hears, uh, you know, these radio shows and, and, and they want to try to, you know, uh, force me out of the school system, then, then that's a battle that I'm willing to have because, um, you know, I just cannot sit back and allow children to, 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 to come through my classroom, to come in my classroom every day and, and not be educated. And I always mm-hmm. tell my students, you know, a couple, I, I tell them a lot of things. And, you know, they'll, they'll tell you that if you ask them. But I always tell them, um, what, whatever you do, learn something. I don't, I, I don't really care what it is. Learn something that is going to help you. And then not only that, you actually have the right not to learn. You have that right. And, but you just cannot <laughs> exercise that right in my classroom. But you do have the right not to learn. You just can't exercise that right in, in this classroom. Because I, I just refuse, and I will work every day, you know, for, for 10 months. And so I don't necessarily buy that these athletes can't fight back. I'll just say that because of their situation, they may refuse to fight back. 
Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, the point is well taken. Uh, I hear you. And I think that uh, one of the really heartening things that has happened in the past few months is that we, we are seeing athletes finally really step forward and assert themselves in a way that they haven't, at least in my memory. Uh, you know, the Northwestern unionization, unionization effort, um, we, we have the, the, the response to this, this Clippers incident that the NBA players just said, no, no, this is not, this is not tolerable. We're not accepting this. Um, we had the All Players United movement uh, last last fall, where you know a handful of players at Georgia Tech and and uh, and a few other places um, signaled <clears throat> signaled their solidarity with other players around the country by writing APU on their wristbands. I mean, there are signs, and this is one of the things I had in mind when I mentioned earlier that there's kind of a national reform movement that's really beginning to gather some steam. There are signs that uh, the players really are waking up, and and that is all to the good. Um, I, they, they're probably, they're the ones who hold the fate of the NCAA in their hands. And if, if they, if they really get mobilized, um, things will change. And, and there's, there are some signs that they're beginning to, they're beginning to think that way. And that's great. Yeah. And, and, and change is definitely, uh, necessary. I believe we have um, another caller. Let, let, let me see. Uh, again, thank you all for being so patient with me. Uh, this is the first time that I've done this by myself. Uh, so thank you so much for being patient with me. Um, caller from area code 901. Uh, the last four digits is 6088. Caller, are you there? I am here. How are you all doing tonight? I'm great. How are Very you, <laughs> I am wonderful, wonderful. It feels so wonderful to be on the other end and just being able to listen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Dr. Smith, Tammy is the is the regular uh, show host for Butterfly Evolution. And so, uh, right. Tammy, thank you so much for, for, for jumping in. You <laughs> are evening. so welcome. You're so welcome. Good evening. Thank you for... for coming on, and, and I wish I could have heard all of it. I, I just was able to tune in for about the last 10 minutes, I guess. So I'm traveling, so I thank you, and I will go back and listen to the archive show. However, I do have a question. Go um, ahead. And I want to kind of go back a little bit because you asked about the how much responsibility lies on the, on the athletes. I want to, I kind of agree with both of you, um, but on behalf of the athletes, you know, I think this starts so soon with them as far as people um, are, are pushing them through at such a young age. I feel like maybe they get to a point to where there's, in their mind, there's no turning. Where, where do I go from here? I don't, I've gotten to a point where I know probably almost nothing. Where do I go if I decide, if I realize that this is not right, how do I correct this wrong? So and, and I can see, you know, trying to just adapt in the world as it is today and fit in just normally, you know, that could be a tough decision to make, you know, just a mm -hmm. tough one. That doesn't mean it's the right decision that they choose not to turn around and go back and say, let me correct this wrong, but I can see where 
um, being young and trying to find your way, kind of been given your way on a silver platter, all, all, all the while knowing that you've not deserved it, it would be kind of hard to turn around from that because it's a lot of work. Um, now I want to ask, how much responsibility should we place on parents? You know, right now we talked about uh, parents not being held accountable, um, even in situations not like this, just period. So how much, because the parent has to know Johnny's coming home with these A's, but I know Johnny can't read. Yeah. <laughs> good good question. Good question there. Um I mean, I guess the problem is that there's no way to hold parents accountable, is there? I mean, that that's the real problem. If we can we can say that they ought to feel accountable, uh, that that they ought to feel the obligation to to speak up and to do the right thing, but we can't. I just not much that can be done on the practical side right. uh, to really hold them accountable. That's that's the that's the problem. It, it's I mean, I think it's going to involve a cultural adjustment, you know, the whole the whole nation has to kind of snap out of it. Um, that's not going to happen instantaneously, I don't think. But um, I, I, I'm just, I'm not, I, I can't see a way, I, I can't see the mechanism for making making parents do the right thing. I just, I, I, because, you know, we educators don't have much leverage over them. Right, right. Seems to me, unless I guess right. unless we unless we fail their students, unless we they we fail their children year after year. I guess maybe that would get their attention, but um, <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe I think, right, I, maybe uh, maybe it would. <laughs> the 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 only the only solution I have ever seen uh, to that, and I don't even know how long. Um, it was even uh, a law. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, and again, I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. When I was in sixth grade, uh, if if your child was uh, seen, you know, um, outdoors, uh, walking down the street at a park, anywhere, if your child was seen outdoors, uh, during school hours, unsupervised, no adult, then your child was picked up by the police and were taken downtown, and the parents then were held accountable. The parents had to go downtown, and I don't know, you know, the rest of the process, but I do know that the parents were required to go downtown uh, and pick mm-hmm. up their children. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's the most accountability I've ever seen. Right. Uh-huh. Um, Huh. But 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 I'll but I'll say this. I mean, and, and we have a uh, a little less than ten minutes to go on the show. Honestly, I don't know if those who are in charge, those who who make the decisions, those who make the laws, the policies, I honestly don't know whether it be K twelve uh, or at the collegiate level. I honestly don't know if they really want to see a change. And mm-hmm. the reason why I say that is because day after day, year after year, we see so many things that suggest that maybe they don't. And I think that until right. 
the general public decides to stand up uh, as a unit and do something about mm-hmm. this, then this problem will always exist, not just when it comes to athletes, but just students in general. And that that's whether they are five years old in kindergarten or whether they are 19 years old playing college sports. Uh, you know, or acting or, or, or anything, I think until the general public uh, decides to stand up and do something about the, these issues, we are going to continue to see them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you may be right. Um, and, and that's kind of depressing because it, it, can, it takes an awful long time for the public to come around to, to much of anything. But you know, but at least I think it does. It does point to the importance of programs like this one, and um, the people continuing to speak out, filling the airwaves with their their own sense of outrage and uh, scandalous details of all of the stuff that's going on. Um, because that's it, you know, we, we can at least hope that. Eventually, we'll reach a tipping point of some sort, and um, the, the collective injustice of the system will become so so apparent, so blindingly obvious, that there really will be a change in public attitude. I, I think I think you're probably right that that is what it will take in the end, unless the courts force through a, a structural change of some sort. Uh, it's going to take um, a change of public attitude, but that's why it's important to. to to, to keep talking it up and trying to influence people in any way possible. I, I agree. Sammy, did you have anything else? I, I agree with you, with you both. I, I, um, I certainly don't see a way that the politicians, school systems, even parents, um, if they wanted change, they certainly could invoke it. I mean, they really could. I mean, so with, with, and this is 69 being a C and jails are being built based on test scores, the results and things like that. I mean, really, I go back to it, the system is not broken. They're, they have purposely uh, set, it, set out to make it this way. And if parents, uh, shows like this, people like us, don't stand, come together, stand together, um, I just don't know where we will go from here. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We we do have uh, we do have one more comment from the uh, the chat room as we wind down uh, these final uh, uh, five minutes of the show. Um, and again, uh, thank you so much uh, to one of uh, my former uh, <laughs> my former uh, schoolmate uh, Calvin, who is hung in there with us um, again, uh, Calvin Smith. Uh, who's actually uh, working in the higher education now. I remember him being um, a student athlete. Um, he was actually on our uh, uh, basketball uh, state championship team um, back in uh, 99-2000. Um, and he says that um, if they were treated as children or young adults without any common sense, we would not expect as much. Uh, from them, um, 
And, again, that is from Calvin. Thank you so much, Calvin, for hanging in there with us um, and tuning in. Uh, Dr. Smith, uh, before we close out, any final comments, uh, advice, words of wisdom? <laughs> uh, I wish I could pull some words of wisdom out of my hat. I really do. But um, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say thanks for the conversation. Uh, it's been enjoyable and eye-opening and um, I think mutually honest and um, I'd, I'd be happy to, to join you again someday. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, hang on just a second. Tammy, uh, any, anything else before we close out? Just want to thank you both again and uh, I enjoyed the portion that I heard. I will go back and listen to the archive show and would love to to be a part of the show in its entirety. So we welcome you back for sure. Great. Uh, thank you to everyone who uh, has tuned in tonight. We always appreciate you uh, uh, listening uh, to the show, whether it be online or by phone. Um, just something to keep in mind. Uh, and an old cliche, our children are our future, regardless of the path that they decide to take, whether they are athletes, whether they are teachers, whether they become uh, sanitation workers. They need a solid foundation in reading, in math, in writing, social studies, science. It doesn't matter where they choose uh, to go in life. They are going to need certain skills, certain tools, and basic knowledge in order to function as productive citizens in our society. If you sit back and do nothing when you see that there is a problem, then you are just as much of the problem as those committing these infractions. When you see wrong Stand up and fight for our children. Fight for what you know is right, even if you'll never reap the benefit from it. Again, it has been great being on with you, Dr. Smith. Thank you so much for your time, for your for your thoughts, for your opinions, and sharing your knowledge with us. We have uh, been blessed by your appearance on the show, and we would love to get you back on. So we know that you're busy. Uh, but we would like to have you back on the show in the near future. Thank you so much. To everyone who is uh, listening, please have a good night. Always be safe. And we thank you so much for tuning into this show. Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone.